everyone, and welcome back to Urban History Podcast at CU Denver. I'm Camille. And I'm Maggie. Our two, our two hosts of the podcast. And, <laughs> and today we're going to continue to explore how patterns in our contemporary urban environment are linked to urban environments of the past. I'll let Maggie introduce our wonderful guest. So today our guest is the COO and supportive housing specialist at ShopWorks Architecture, where she helps facilitate the building of affordable housing by partnering with nonprofit clients on their affordable housing developments, identifying best practices in housing development, leading research on trauma-informed design, and finding solutions to barriers to affordable housing. So please welcome to the podcast, Reverend Laura Raspert. So good to be with you all today. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, For context for our listeners, Reverend Laura was a guest lecturer for one of my classes recently and just really, really spoke to the whole class. I think um, her work on trauma-informed design, which she'll talk about, has really kind of left an impression on a lot of uh, current CU uh, students, I think. And I thought it would be really wonderful. Maggie and I thought it'd be wonderful to have her here to kind of spread that message a bit more. Um, I guess I'd love if you could start, Laura, by kind of giving a background on what trauma-informed design is and kind of where it came from. Sure thing. Um, just a little on my background too. Um, so I come from the nonprofit world. I helped build affordable housing. Um, I also was a community organizer for many years. Um, and I was working at the Dolores Project, which is a homeless shelter for women and transgender folks wherever they are on the gender spectrum. And we were building affordable housing. And when you're offering services to folks uh, who experience trauma, which is 65% of all of us, mm-hmm. um, there's a best practice called trauma-informed care, which acknowledges how our brains get shifted when we've experienced trauma. And that's kind of the way that you offer programs and services needs to look a little different than kind of the historical way we've offered that. And honestly, trauma-informed care is a best practice. Uh, Even in my kids, uh, Denver Public Schools, for example, have trauma-informed care advocates. And so really the base of it was an understanding of how to best offer programs and services in the shelter and the housing we were building, as well as uh, Rochelle Maker on our team is an expert in biophilia, um, Mm -hmm. how nature helps us heal. It's kind of those two things combined led us into this pursuit of trauma-informed design. So when we were designing this brand new homeless shelter being designed from the ground up, which is really rare, often you get kind of retrofitted buildings with shelters. And we were also building supportive housing, which is for folks who've been chronically homeless, often with a disability, right? So a lot of folks coming out of homelessness. And we really, as a design team, started having these really strong conversations over what does an understanding of trauma mean for the built environment? So ShopWorks Architecture was our architect. I now work there, which is (laughs) a funny life story. (laughs) And what we, the only research we could really find was on like healthcare clinics or therapist's office. So my friend Mm -hmm. who owned a therapy practice, like I was like picking her brain, (laughs) but it felt really different to design a therapy practice versus somebody's home. Mm. And so we kind of fell into this trauma-informed design world that we're now oddly leaders of nationwide, which was (laughs) never our intention. But we just wanted to think some thoughts and and offer something to the affordable housing industry so that they could have something to go off of. So Mm -hmm. kind of at its core, trauma-informed design acknowledges that buildings matter. Often when folks have experienced trauma, so often our our bodies respond, people who've experienced trauma and those who haven't. When you walk into a building, 
you can feel great or not great or somewhere mm. in the middle. Um, and as somebody who is not a designer, right, I work at an architecture firm, but I'm not an architect. I, I, I like them a lot. We spend our days together. <laughs> but I can't point out why this space doesn't feel safe to me, right, in the way probably many of the folks listening to this podcast can. But our bodies react to the built environment often before we can consciously have thoughts about it. So trauma-informed design acknowledges that when folks have experienced traumas, their brain's makeup is different. Their parts of their brain respond in different ways. They have different wiring in their brain and interact with spaces differently. And so we need to make sure that our buildings help folks feel safe and empowered, help them thrive, not just survive. So that's kind of the the core of what trauma-informed design is. Yeah. I just feel so like, I feel like you must have a really strong ability to interpret how people feel into architectural terminology and, and back and forth. I think that is an interesting dynamic. Yeah, I think what's also really important about our work in trauma-informed design is that we're prioritizing the voices of those with lived experience. And so that is really the heart of our process. And so I know how to facilitate a good conversation among a group of folks, but at the end of the day, so much of my job is hearing what people are saying, believing them and writing it down so that a design team has values and visions and goals to go off of that sit in that room. Um, So those voices of people with lived experience are the ones guiding the design process. I think that's, that's great. That's how so much of planning really should. And, and I think at its best tries to be is listening to a community and saying what, what is needed here, what's specific about your, your home and what you can add. And I think, something when I talk with friends who are not in the planning or design field is that they, they notice a lot of things in the built environment around them. I mean, maybe they don't have the terminology to vocalize what that means, but it's something that a good environment makes you feel good and a bad environment makes you feel bad. And I think that's just innate to being human and you don't need to have a degree to know that at all. Um, Just (laughs) how to kind of translate those observations into what is built around you. So a good in-between person is really what's needed, I think. In my, in my early first year opinion. So I, uh, you know, in this podcast, we want to connect this work being done now currently to work in the past uh, is, and I was, you know, thinking before the term, like you said, is something that you kind of coined, but you know, there had to be some examples out there of maybe in the built environment, this, these concepts being kind of put to action. And uh, unfortunately I did not find a lot, which is, you know, not the most encouraging thing about our past. I don't know if that's just um, what I searched for, but I definitely found a lot of good examples of sort of theories about institutional facilities that are the absolute opposite of trauma-informed design. And there's something I remember yeah. learning about in my in my undergraduate um, studied geography and sociology, and the, the idea of the panopticon. Is that something that you're familiar with? Uh, no. Okay. Well, let me just tell you a little briefly about it. So it's a disciplinary concept that kind of brought to life through the, the theory. It's connected to social theorist Jeremy Bentham, and he had this connection to my school that I went to for exchange in, in UCL. And it essentially the idea that if you build a space, and this was kind of theorized in, in prisons, for example, one of the worst mm. kind of institutional spaces. But if if you it's a, a watchtower in the middle of a circular set of cells. And if there's mm-hmm. and it's blackened windows so that those the people who are imprisoned 
never know if they're being watched. There could be someone at the tower. There could not be someone at the tower. They could be looking directly in their cell. They could not be. But it kind of also evolved into the ideas behind like kind of a security state of security mm-hmm. cameras and and the, the idea of always being watched. So that is a design in a space that is really the exact opposite of, of my understanding of when, what you've, you've shared about trauma-informed design. It's, it's always feeling unsafe in your space, always being on edge. And that idea is meant to kind of for safety for for prisoners but that that is creating i'm imagining a horrible trauma in those people experiencing that right and is it meant for safety or is it meant for power and control <laughs> it's definitely um, meant for power and control you know? yes <laughs> and so i mean i think that that's what's really interesting and i think for me kind of the historical commentary on trauma-informed design and really you know we focus on affordable housing at shopworks mm-hmm. architecture and really it's about Back in the day when affordable housing was started to be built, right? I mean, it was these massive, hideous towers mm-hmm. where they just put people. And, you know, and at the end of the day, I don't think these people had ill intentions, right? Mm-hmm. But it's about the impact that they had. And they were saying, look, we're, we're giving somebody shelter. Good for us. How great are we that <laughs> we are giving people housing? Mm-hmm. And we can have a whole conversation about how housing is, a tool of economics and not about housing people, which is kind of the heart of our affordable housing Uh crisis. But they weren't thinking about health and healing. They were saying people need shelter, right? We're Mm -hmm. we're at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs there. Mm -hmm. And I think where we're moving as an industry, which is fantastic, is housing is connected to our healing, to our health. There's all of these studies being done on this. And it's it's not rocket science, but it's an important thought to have. And so instead of just creating housing that provides shelter, how are creating housing that helps folks feel empowered and have ownership over their space? You know, and I'll interview folks with lived experience. And, you know, I gave a presentation with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless a couple of years ago. And this woman came up to me afterwards and she said, thank you so much for this. Because I talked to my case manager about how my current building doesn't feel safe and the hallways are narrow and it's really dark and I can never see around the corner. And my case manager just kind of looks at me like I'm crazy. But what you're saying is that I'm right, actually, that I I get a say over how my face feels, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, of course. Right? <laughs> but I do think that there was a lot of really good intentions that had some really negative a- impact. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thankful that we're now, we're thinking better thoughts about what this means to be in community and what it means as a community to build housing, not the haves they're designing housing for the quote have not, right? Which was the yeah. old way of doing it. Can you share a little bit about some of the examples of how trauma-informed design plays out? You know, for example, in the Dolores project, I'd love to share some photos sure. with our listeners about that just to kind of see this in the built environment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think it's always, you know, what's important is I think I've said this already, right, is that it really depends on the identities of the folks who are going to experience the building firsthand. And that's not just, you know, residents or guests, that's also staff. Um, Because staff experience vicarious trauma as well, kind of hearing these hard stories day in and day out. And they also need to be thought of. So, you know, the Dolores Project, um, in our old shelter, it was this kind of old retrofitted building. It was dark and gross and, you know, but we had a building, so we were thankful, right? We were a nonprofit, Mm -hmm. like, 
we're so thankful we have a building. But staff didn't have any place to go if they had a hard moment at work to kind of go recuperate. Mm -hmm. And so one of the pieces of trauma-informed design was creating a staff break room. So staff now have a place where they can grab a coffee or a tea or light a candle or leave a note for another staff person that's there than there's alone. That's really important. But also trauma-informed design is a lot about the process. So there's, Mm -hmm. you know, light is great. I always kind of tease the architects because also folks who've experienced homelessness and are moving into housing. Yeah, they want big windows, 100%. And they also want blackout blinds because they actually mm. haven't had darkness, right? Mm. Um, and so I think we sometimes take these ideas of like, oh, light is good for everybody. And it's like, mm. well, it is. But also being able to be in pitch black for the first time, because when you're sleeping on the street or in shelters, there's always a light on, right? For mm. safety. Um And it's also, you know, at the Dolores Project, we have a guest advisory committee that meets on a monthly basis. And so what we do is we'd come, you know, the architects would put some design down on paper and then I'd bring it to the guest advisory committee and I'd say, what do you like? What don't you like? Right. And so they loved a lot of things like really wide hallways um, because Dolores serves a high population of trans folks. We put a lot of thought into the bathrooms. Um, bathrooms are really where a lot of trauma happens for trans folks. And so we have these kind of this twofold bathroom with shower stalls, with locking doors so that people can feel safe. And then we have this other area that has really nice long mirrors on one side with chairs and beautiful lights and then sinks on kind of the other side of the room. Uh, One of the wins, I will say, on trauma-informed design in that shelter is that guests in the shelter hang out in the bathroom. Um, (laughs) They'll, like, gather the chairs together and hang out. And when I heard that, I cried because I was like, I just want bathrooms to be safe, right? And Mm -hmm. it was something, I mean, I think the architects might have gotten a little annoyed at me how focused I was on the bathrooms. Another interesting moment in the design process at Dolores as it relates to trauma-informed design is in the old shelter, the staff office was on the opposite side of the building from the dorm. And that was really scary. If something happened in the dorms in the middle of the night, somebody would have to run to the other side of the building. And so I came to the guest advisory committee super proud of our team because the staff office was across off the hallway from the dorm and the dorms had doors with windows. So like staff were right there, but folks had their privacy, which is what I thought was the best solution. And the guest advisory committee was like, that's great, Laura, but it's not good enough. And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? What do you mean? And they're like, we want the staff office inside the dorm. And the average age of the guests of the Dolores Project was 49 at the time when I was there. So this isn't like a young youth population, right? Mm -hmm. These are older folks, established adults. And I was like, okay, we'll do it. But I need to know why, like, because I'm, I'm trying to represent your voice at this design table. To me, staff offices in the dorm is Big Brother is watching you, Mm -hmm. right? And they're like, no, Laura. I haven't felt safe while sleeping for two decades. And if I know that staff is watching me sleep, I can rest. Mm. And like, for me, that was such a moment in my own trauma-informed design understanding. Mm -hmm. Because I, my intention was respect and privacy. Mm. And I have always felt safe when I sleep. I am really lucky. And I know that's really rare. And the guests said, no, like, it's not about privacy. It's about safety. And it, safety comes first and foremost in trauma-informed design. If folks don't feel safe, it's not whether spaces are safe, it's whether they feel safe to spe- the specific populations that are going to be in the building. 
nothing else matters, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was really a learning moment for me in this process of my intentions and my hopes really getting in the way because I was making assumptions that people experience space the way I do, which is not true. Mm-hmm. And we're all unique, right? And like, we can't, you know, there's no way to design for 100% of the folks who are going to ever walk through that building, right? But how mm-hmm. do we hear that voice, find that consensus and make design decisions based on that? That's so interesting. I wonder, is there a place for trauma-informed design in buildings that suit non-trauma-specified occupants? right? Like yeah. what you're saying is so tailored, intentionally so yeah. and thoughtfully so, but is there room for that in just whatever would be the quote unquote regular office space? You know, yeah, hundred percent. Totally. You know, you asked for my definition of trauma-informed design and I didn't really kind of go into, we developed a framework. We've interviewed over 800 mm-hmm. folks with lived experience. We've impacted over 50 buildings that so relates to trauma-informed design, which wow. is A wacky statement for me to make. (laughs) Um, But we do have kind of this framework where we think about how we're designing for community, for comfort, for joy, for choice, for folks Mm -hmm. to feel empowered in their space, right? And then, and then values, right? Around like safety and peace of mind, hope, connection. And then really thinking about kind of the neighborhood context, environmental context, the lived experience, the identities of the folks who are going to be in the space. So that's really kind of what we've come to find through our years of research with our multidisciplinary team, which includes the Center for Housing and Homelessness Research at the University of Denver and Group 14 Engineering. And what I want to say about it is trauma-informed design, yes, I think it's easy to like understand like, oh yeah, when you're designing a homeless shelter, of course this matters. But trauma-informed design is about all of us and all of our healing and wholeness. And so when we're thinking about trauma-informed design, I mean, this isn't just about affordable housing. This is about how, how do we prioritize like people over cars in cities? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that we all have the elements in an environment that we need to thrive, right? And yeah, if you have diverse populations going through a building, yeah, you're going to be probably making certain choices to prioritize certain populations. But Everybody likes white hallways, right? If you're walking or rolling, if you're pushing a a stroller, right? White hallways help everybody. Big windows with blackout blinds can reach everybody, right? And so I do think when we're thinking about trauma-informed design, it's easy to think about those folks over there. But Kaiser Permanente and the CDC did a study in the mid-90s that noted 65% of Americans, this was in an upper middle class suburb in California, 65% of folks had a major childhood trauma, had an um, adverse childhood experience, an ACE score is what we call them. And so, you know, this is really a revolutionary concept about how everything should be designed, you know, and and sometimes when I'm feeling snarky and going toe to toe with some of the architecture shop works, like, they're like, Laura, this is just good design. I'm like, I'm aware of that. But people aren't thinking about mental health and building design as Mm -hmm. much as they need to. And so, Here's a process. Here's a way to do it so that we actually are thinking about that, right? What does that Mm -hmm. look like? So yeah, so Maggie, I totally 100% agree. I mean, this is about, this is about all of us. This is about, you know, I mean, in my house, I try to do things. I have my plants. I have my like big French doors I open and I let the fresh air in and that's a gift to me. But how do we do that in office buildings and in Mm -hmm. schools? Oh my God. Gosh, how untrauma informed design are so many schools. Yeah. You know, and so how do we think about how buildings make us feel and help us be fully human as well? 
one of the the tenets of trauma informed design that really stuck with me when you explained it was the opportunity, the idea of kind of choice and flexibility in, mm-hmm. you know, for example, seating. And that really left me with kind of public spaces when I am in a park and it's like, I'm looking to just kind of relax on a comfortable laid back chair in the sun, right. or I'm looking to gather with some friends at a table, or I'm looking to mm-hmm. kind of sit at a tiered stair kind of around others. The idea of, right. of having choice just gives you, I'm sure you can talk to it more, but to connect where you want to connect, but disassociate where you want to disassociate. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, biophilia talks about, you know, every room should have space for prospect and refuge, right? So, you know, we designed this building, Laurel House for Youth Exiting Homelessness in Grand Junction. And, you know, they have not had easy lives. And so we created all these like reading nooks that are kind of built into the wall that are these like little coves alcoves um, that they can kind of sit and read and they can see what's going on, but they don't have to participate in it. Right. And then there's seats right smack dab in the middle of the space for that like extrovert who wants to feel all that energy and wants to be in the middle of it and kind of wants to talk to all the strangers walking by. And so, yeah, I mean, I think choice is one of the things that makes us all human and gosh, I do it in parenting all the time, right? Do you want to go to bed now or in five minutes, right? Choices <laughs> um, wow. are a little more limited when you're five, but, <laughs> but you know, I think too, like I want to make housing something that doesn't happen to people, but people are a part of, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so in talking to potential residents of our buildings, they're like, can I choose just one accent wall color that's meaningful to me? Mm-hmm. Um, we do different furniture uh, often when folks are exiting home homelessness, they don't have furniture. And so we, in support of housing, you provide furniture. And so doing two different color schemes so they can choose the furniture they have in their apartment, you know, dimmer switches on lights. Oh my gosh. Every time I talk to folks, they want dimmer switches on lights so that mm-hmm. they can set the lighting in their space. Software. We are very pro dim light in this, yeah. in this <laughs> yeah. chat right now. Yeah. I like it. No one loves uh, a string light more than Camille. And that's oh, a fact. goodness. Yeah. Nice. Oh, I love it. So yeah, I mean, I think the thinking in that design process, how can we create choice in this environment? How can people have that choice of where they situate themselves that feels empowering mm-hmm. um, and not like I'm going to sit in this really uncomfortable plastic chair because it's my only option. Yeah. And for those kind of listening and really feeling hopeful about these ideas, can you share like what impact you've maybe seen in this nationwide? Yeah. I mean, I think it's been a little funny. We created this framework in 2020 and I was Ooh, like, maybe like a hundred people will read our document. <laughs> oh yeah. Great year. Great year. Shamelessly. <laughs> um, and, um, and like, we've now trained over 1700 people in trauma-informed design nationwide. I mean, I was just out in LA. I'm working with some folks in DC. It's been a bit astounding to me, to be frank. And really, it's we were able to kind of put things down on paper. And it makes perfect sense once you hear it. Like once we started exploring it, Chad and I were like, why? Like, this is so obvious, right? And so, I mean, it's been fun because there's dimmer switches on lights in a building in Detroit I'll probably never set foot in. Mm-hmm. Um, but they attended one of my trainings. I trained their design team and, um, you know, they were far into construction, but they were able to add a couple mm-hmm. things, for example. Mm-hmm. And so I do think, so we created our first framework and the affordable housing industry was like, that's great, make it plain to us. So we created an overview with our four phases of a trauma-informed design process because it's really, it's not a checklist, it's a process. Like you got to do the work. And then a step-by-step manual, like 
feel it. You know, people are like, oh, would you mind sharing like a couple of the questions you ask in pre-occupancy mm-hmm. research? I'm like, you can have all my questions. Like, <laughs> this is not for us. This yeah. is to be helpful for the universe, right? And tell me what you disagree with so I can edit mm-hmm. it and make it better. And then we also have architectural principles in pursuit of trauma-informed design done by Dr. Sam Grabowska and Chad Holtzinger at Shopworks to really think about the specific architecture pieces and the themes there and then talk about how our bodies interact with space, for example. It felt like I wrote, we wrote this like little framework document and the whole universe like shouted back at us. So it's been really, really fun and kind of funny to me, I will be honest. Because <laughs> uh, I'm like, I don't think any of this is rocket science. I'm just writing yeah. things down that other people are telling me. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, we, we know how to hire a designer and make pretty publications. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Um, sure it's reassuring to see that other people kind yeah. of care to, to make these interventions, but maybe, yeah, like having the terminology, having the, having that click yeah. in your head is sometimes needed. Totally. And there's some great folks like enterprise community partners is doing a lot of resilient design work. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of folks I found who've kind of been doing this all over the country and maybe talking a little bit, but really kind of finding opportunities to really come together and think better thoughts and higher level thoughts when we come together and learn from each other. Great. And then connecting the design itself to to greater issues. Can you share a bit how, about how this connects to issues of, of equity? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think if you, when you explore the housing development world, and I'm sure the development world generally, but I'm really kind of integrated into the affordable housing world, it's led by a lot of folks who have privilege, predominantly white, predominantly male. And so the work of trauma-informed design is really important because it's it's flipping that script and it's mm-hmm. saying, that's great that you know how to finance a development. However, you do not know what it is like to walk around in a black or brown body in this world. You don't know what it's like to walk around as a woman-identified person. Um, you don't know what it's like to experience homelessness, to, to leave your family, to survive your own life, Right. And so it's saying we all play a beautiful role in this world and we need to prioritize the voices of those with lived experience. They are the experts of their own lives. They need to sit on these design tables and we need to do have broad conversations before every development to ensure that we are not doing something to a population, that the population who is impacted is leading our process to ensure we are meeting their needs and their hopes and their dreams, you know, and that's, that's part of our trauma-informed design process is, I mean, folks are so incredibly resilient and so strong and it's so fun because we end every focus group by asking like, what keeps you going on your hard days? What are your hopes? What are your dreams? And seeking to integrate those aspects as well into the building itself, because that's where we all find meaning and belonging. Yeah. I think it's really kind of going back to the idea of Panopticon. And I really like what you said about it being not about safety, but about power and control. And and some of these ideas really just feel like it's flipping that script. It's giving the power. It's giving the control of the own lived experience of your home to the people who are going to be living right. in and allowing the architects, yep. the designers, planners to just kind of facilitate those conversations to make it a reality exactly. for them. Well, thank you so much for working this. Thank you for sharing this. And I think I said this before, but you're very humble. Um, but it really is <laughs> wonderful that you're bringing your expertise and listening to those voices that you've had the opportunity to talk to and you have the skill to connect exactly. with to the design and planning world. Awesome. Yeah. It's an, it's an honor and a privilege to kind of carry these stories with me and 
hold me accountable to <laughs> the goals that I have for all of our developments and make sure we're fulfilling those. So it's really fun. And I hope people look at what we've put out into the universe and ask questions. And if you disagree with me, that's the highest form of flattery in my book. Um, so <laughs> share your thoughts with me as well, because this is really a labor of love for a huge community that I hope all of you listening to this podcast will become a part of as well. Thank you. Amazing. We always end the podcast with a little segment we call, can somebody ask a blank? And I'm sure you have a lot of moments like this, maybe Laura, where you're like, what is, you know, especially being around a lot of architects, but you're, you don't have the background of like, what is this thing? <laughs> yeah. I, I know I've observed this in the world. I wonder <laughs> about it, but I just don't know. And uh, uh, Maggie's going to lead this one today. <clears throat> All right. I All thought right. this might be applicable. So my thought is, can somebody ask, uh, and I suppose it's either an architect or even a color theorist. What is it about apartments that are geared towards like mid twenties that you think you need to put yellow yellow uh, materials on the outside of the building. Do you know what I'm saying? That I, I can point to so many like high rise or like, you know, four story multi-unit apartments. Are you 25? We stripe this thing yellow, get in here. So can somebody ask a color theorist what it is about being in your mid to late twenties that people think you love? You have like a decent disposable income, but you're not ready to buy a condo, but you're kind of getting out of college and you're, your mom's going to give you $200 for Christmas and you're spending it on alcohol to get in this apartment. That's the exact, (laughs) I mean, is it sunny, a a sunny color? I don't know. I mean, it's fun. It does add some brightness to the built environment, but it is a a very common yellow. (laughs) Well, I actually, there's a really interesting example, and you shared this in class, of of a thoughtful yellow, not a yellow, just, hmm, let's put yellow, yellow. but uh, yeah. I think it's in the Dolores project, right, Laura, the blue it and is. yellow and yeah, purple. Have- Can you describe that? Yeah. So one of the pieces of trauma-informed design is identity anchors. So ways that the building can make people feel at home and connected to the space. And so on the Dolores project building, originally when folks were guests of the shelter, they'd received quilts from volunteers. Um, now Dolores serves over 500 folks a year, so they can't give individual quilts to everybody. But if you drive by the building right at the Knox Court light rail stop, you can see that we made the image of a quilt on the side of the building. And you kind of know when you know, mm-hmm. otherwise it just looks like a lot of different colors. But we did do yellow sunshades on every apartment unit. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so so the 20 somethings are welcome there too. That's right. <laughs> <An> identity anchor. <laughs> There's something in it for everyone. I love it. I yeah. knew you would know. Exactly. <laughs> well, well, great. Thank you so much again. We look forward to, to continuing to see where this goes. Wonderful. Thanks all for inviting me to be a part of your show. Thank you so much. All right. Ooh. Bye everyone. Talk to you next month. Thanks for listening to another episode of Urban History Podcast at CU Denver. Join us next month for another episode connecting historical urbanism with contemporary urban planning. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at at urbanhistorypod. And we'd love to have you share the episode with a friend and leave us a review on your podcast platform. It really helps others find the show. And it also is nice to see. See you all next month.